Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back. A couple of quick notes. If you have an Android phone, you can download Google Podcast. It's free. There's no cost. If you have an Android phone, you've already done what's necessary to install it. If you have an iPhone... Probably the best way is through iTunes. Uh, they, they have a whole an entire podcast section there. And you can search for Plenteous Redemption Podcast. That's the name of my podcast. That's where this audio will be. Now, it's also, it, it, it automatically gets uploaded on YouTube as well as on uh, Facebook when I, uh, when I upload it onto the platform that hosts my podcast. But if you use YouTube and Facebook, you're probably going to have to use more data. These will prevent you from using so much data if you just use a, a native podcasting app. So it would be much easier for you to have it. You can also uh, download it from there to your phone if you would like to. So if you have... Access to Wi-Fi, that'll help cut down on some of the data you're using. Um, otherwise, it, all the audio will be uploaded and available there. That makes it easier. So you can go back and listen to it again if you'd like. I'll leave that up for a few minutes. Um, all right. Now, we left off last week with Old Testament preservation. That's kind of where we came to, to a stop. And, uh, and again, remember, these are, we're doing kind of a fast overview in these first, in these first couple of weeks. And then we're going to kind of double back and, and go into more detail a little bit later. Um, and so while we might, we might get into, into a little bit more detail with some people and less detail with others, uh, a lot of that will be rectified by the end of the course, Lord willing. So New Testament preservation. We noted that the Old Testament was preserved by God and that certain men of the priesthood were used to produce accurate copies over time. Right? So 
God used the priest and scribes to produce copies. And they were unbelievably meticulous. Uh, they took great care to produce those copies. And, um, and so it's still available today. Now, in the New Testament, God, God is still doing the, the preserving. That, that hasn't changed. But now we have a universal priesthood of believers. So we went from the Old Testament priesthood to the universal priesthood of all believers. So now, so now who do you think is responsible for the Word of God? It's anyone that has trusted in Jesus Christ, anyone that's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is why we spend... Hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars passing out Bibles and tracts and doing everything that we can to get the Word of God into people's hands. And the Bible that's called Sowing the Good Seed. We just want to get the Word of God out to as many people as we can. And uh, we often, when we're out at the roundabout, you know, since school, schools reopened, we went from 2,000 tracts per month just at the roundabout to 4,000 tracts per month just at the roundabout. That's a lot of tracks. And, and we're only touching a tiny, tiny portion of the people that come out there. When I look out across that roundabout and you see the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that are, that are on the other side that don't even know we're there. They don't hear the preaching. They don't see the signs. They don't get a tract because we only have enough people currently who are interested in serving Jesus Christ to cover that small little corner where we are. How many people are in our church on a Sunday morning? How many of them are on the roundabout Friday evening? (laughs) Not many. And so there's a problem here. And it's a problem that needs to be be reconciled. It needs to be corrected. uh, And that's only going to happen through through spiritual growth and maturity. We have uh, a large portion of people in this church that have been here for some time and haven't grown spiritually. So they haven't gotten involved. They don't care. They don't, they don't, they're not concerned about souls. They just want to make sure they have a church to attend on Sunday. Well, that's, that's great, but there are, you know, how many people die? I've never looked up the number, but how many people die in Uganda alone every day? And they die without the gospel of Jesus Christ. How often do we get frustrated that, you know, that this man, him and his two sons, put a loudspeaker on his house so that he can have a mosque and, and do the call to prayer. Nobody goes there. It's just, it's just them. And it frustrates, us, it frustrates us, but God said, if they have not the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. I said, I, I gave you everything you need. You have the word of God. You have the priesthood of the saints. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have everything you need to go out and tell people about my son. And so if they don't know, it's your fault. <clears throat> that, those, are, those are tough words to think about. So the exclusive Old Testament priesthood has passed away, and now we have the universal priesthood of all believers. This is one of the great follies of the Catholic Church, um, and churches like it. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists and Episcopalian churches and Anglican churches, while the, while the Episcopalians and the Anglicans in this day, when we're talking about the King James Bible in the, in the 1800s, 
we would have been fairly comfortable in their churches. Doctrinally, in many areas, they would have been very sound. Of course, there would have been some areas where we wouldn't be comfortable. But my point is, they reflected more Bible-believing churches than they did Orthodox Catholic-style churches. Over time, they threw all that out, and they they went back under the, the wings of the Catholic Church. And so you have these churches who who don't understand one of the most fundamental divisions in the Bible. You, you have, if you're going to, if you're going to tell people who you are and what you belong to, you have three options. You're a Jew, a Gentile, or part of the church of God. Those are your only options. You have churches who claim to be part of the church of God, but couldn't tell you the first thing about entering the church of God or how to become part of the church of God, who instead of identifying with the church of God as laid out in the word of God, they claim to be Jews. And so they take on a priesthood. They call themselves priests. And, and they, they, they adopt all, the, all this religious activity and they, and they adapt it for their, for their church use. This was the reason for the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church killed millions and millions of people in the name of the kingdom of heaven, trying to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth because they thought that, you know, well, God sent the Jews into Canaan and told them to kill everybody and take the land. So the Jews are going to do the same thing and go kill everybody and take land. God never told the church to do that. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We, 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 fight a, we fight spiritual battles. We go into all the world and we preach the gospel to every creature. We don't kill anybody. We don't take any land. God hasn't promised us any land. He hasn't, he hasn't given us any of those type promises. We belong to the church, which means you're a stranger and a pilgrim wandering through land where you don't belong. Our home is in heaven. We're supposed to be looking forward to heaven. But between now and then, you're supposed to be out preaching the gospel and telling people about Jesus Christ and, and building people up in the Word of God. And, and so you have, this, you have this old exclusive priesthood that was very specific. It passes away, and now we have the universal priesthood of all believers. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, He has made you a king and a priest. Look at a couple of passages that demonstrate that. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you are a royal priesthood. Look at verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. So these are people that have been born again. And as newborn babes, God wants you to desire the word of God and to grow thereby. But part of the outworking of that or a natural aspect of being born again means that you are now part of a royal priesthood. You belong to God in that fashion. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 and verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Who does that pertain to? Christians. People who have trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you did that, you've been washed in his blood. Look at verse 6. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, now imagine as a member of this priesthood, what if you showed as much concern for God's word as the Old Testament priest did? What if you took as much responsibility for God's word as the Old Testament priest did? What if you were as careful with God's word as the Old Testament priests were? That, as, I, as I told you before, the Masorites would, they were so careful, they would count every single letter that was supposed to be in one document, and if it was missing one letter, they threw it away. You're gonna, if we get to it later, you're going to find that uh, when they would sit down, <clears throat> before they would come in and write, they had an entire process they had to go through. They had to clean themselves physically. They would come in, they would sit down, and they would write, and when they got to God's name in any form, they would stop, put their pen down, go out, clean themselves again, come back in, and then write God's name. They were unbelievably meticulous and took great care to make sure they were reproducing God's word perfectly and carefully, and and we just have it. We're just, you know, yeah, I've got a couple Bibles. I just kind of throw them around and (laughs) don't really care about them. What, you know, what if if you were, were as meticulous as they were with God's word, as careful as they were with God's word? They, they, it, it was, it's unbelievable the, the extent, the, the diligence, the faithfulness that, that they, they went through in order to protect and to reproduce God's word. Now, what if they failed? And as Brother, uh, Nianzi asked a question last week, you know, are these the same people that were fighting with Jesus when he came? Yes, yeah, the same people. But, but they, they, they so cared about the, the Word of God, not because, not necessarily, and it, and, and it would vary depending on the period of time, and it would vary depending on the individual, uh, but most of them at a certain point didn't care so much about the fact that it was God's Word. They cared about their lineage. They cared about their attachment to, the, to this book. And, and so that, that was a primary motivation for many of them, but some of them genuinely cared about God's word. All throughout history, we read about Ezra. Ezra came out of Babylon and showed up in, in, in Jerusalem and opened the law of Moses. And from morning until midday, just read the word of God to the people. And they just ate it up. They loved it. And so there, there were priests throughout history that didn't care, and there were priests throughout history who did care. Which side of history are you going to be on? Are you going to be a priest who belongs to God who doesn't really care? Are you going to be one who is, who is fundamentally concerned about the Word of God, its preservation, and its distribution to the world around you? Is this the only way things are going to change and people are going to be helped? It's through the Word of God. There's nothing else that can, that can change people's lives and do for them, not only here and now, but in eternity, the way the Word of God will. But it's up to us to get it out to people. Now, the New Testament in written format. Look at Job 19. Job had a peculiar idea. 
Job consider, is considered one of the oldest documents in existence. And all the way back then, Job had, a, had an interesting idea. Job 19, verses 23 through 27. Verse 23. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Does that sound familiar? Now imagine, you know, you have what people say about Job's day. Uh, you know, they, they, they say as far back as, there are a lot of people who said as far back as Moses that, that they didn't have the ability to, to write or they didn't record documents in, in the way that we find here in the Bible. And then they started finding all these documents that were written and recorded just like they are here in the Bible. <laughs> it, it, it never ceases to fail that if you just stick with the Word of God, archaeology, history, science, they'll all catch up eventually. Just because they come out with some new discovery that seems to be contrary to the Word of God, you just stick with the Word of God because in five years, ten years, they're going to change. <laughs> they're going to say, oh, we were wrong. Here's, here's, here's what we found now. And at some point, they'll come in line perfectly with the Word of God. And, and so Job wanted his words written in a book, look at verse 24, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, where would, where would Job get an idea like that? <clears throat> he said, this body is going to die. It's going to go in the grave. The worms are going to eat it up. But one day, I'm going to stand in this body before my Redeemer. And I I wished I could record these words. I wish it was written down so that the day it happened, you could say, see, I told you. (laughs) I, I, I knew my Redeemer was coming. Job understood there was a coming Redeemer and that he would someday meet that Redeemer face to face. He, he, he had that in his mind. He understood that. He said it confidently. But, now, but in this instance, Job is referring to a latter date when the Lord himself will stand upon the earth and Job will be there and will meet him face to face as well. Now, as the latter days is always a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ and his, his eventual return, physical return to the earth. And Job expects to be there. He expects to be part of all this. He has no anticipation it's going to happen without him. And, and he's looking forward to this day, but, the, but if you take the combination of ideas of what he's saying here, the, the Redeemer standing on the earth and the details of that Redeemer written in a book, well, that's what we have right here. That's what we have in our Bible, in written form. Now, that, that's, that's what's so incredible. When, when something is in written form, it's, it's hard to alter. It's hard to change. Now, in Uganda, contracts don't mean anything. I don't even know why you have them. <laughs> you just, I guess, I guess it's just to go through the motions. But at least currently in America, if you sign a contract and you don't keep up your end of the contract, when they take you to court, you know what the judge is going to say? Where's the contract? 
Okay, here's the contract. It says you were going to do A and you were going to do B. Did you do what you said you were going to do? Well, no, I didn't do according to the contract. You're guilty. You broke the written contract. And when there is a written contract, it protects both parties from from possible trouble. God gave you his word in written form. That's incredible. It's unbelievable. If you're going to be held eternally accountable to God, wouldn't you want to know what he thinks? Wouldn't you want to know how to please him? I don't want some man in a silly gown standing in front of me telling me what he thinks God will be okay with. I want to know what God said, and God gave us his word so that we can do that. I don't need a religion. That's why people get frustrated with us. They say, well, what religion are you? Well, we're not part of a religion. Well, you have to be. (laughs) No, I don't have to be. I'm not offering you a religion. I'm offering you a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And, and then the, the, the tenets of that relationship will be built upon this book. Not on your ideas, not on your opinion, not on your religion. What God said here is what we want to apply to our lives so that in eternity we can, we can, we can pass from this life into eternity and hopefully we will have pleased God because we trusted in his son and tried to live according to his book. And so that's where we want to be. Look at John 14. Verses 25 through 26. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, when these men were writing the four Gospels, the men that are being spoken to here, the Holy Spirit had full control over their memory and what was being written. That The Lord said, whatever I said to you, the Holy Spirit will bring that to remembrance. Now, you have a lot of people who say, well, the Lord said he'd bring it to remembrance. Well, bring what to remembrance? Do you read the Bible? If you don't read the Bible, there's nothing to bring to remembrance. If you don't spend time in the Bible, there's nothing for God to bring to your remembrance. If you don't study the Bible, if you don't memorize the Bible, then what is the Lord going to bring? He said, whatsoever I have said unto you, that will the Holy Spirit bring to your remembrance. Outside of that, what <laughs> you just got to make it up because you haven't read it, you haven't studied it, yet you spent no time in God's Word. So what is it that the Holy Spirit is supposed to bring to remembrance? There's nothing there. <laughs> you didn't put it in so that it could come out. And so these men, I went through a college course when I was in the military. I was in the Air Force, and I took a New Testament survey class. And it was a Methodist college with, a, with an effeminate, unbelieving professor. And I was lost at the time, so I didn't, I didn't know any better. I, I was just, I didn't believe anything he said anyways. He hated me being in his class because I questioned everything he said constantly. And he would get frustrated and have to stop. In fact, as a matter of fact, he would get to a certain point where he would say something and then he would look at me just to see, is he going to raise his hand? Is he going <laughs> to ask, ask a question? Because it was ridiculous. He went through this entire, uh, he, 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 taught, he taught this entire class on the four Gospels 
And, and his, his entire point was trying to prove to you that God had nothing to do with these men writing the four Gospels, that what they did was they went to witnesses and they asked witnesses, well, what did you see? And what did you see? And what did you see? And so they just recorded what the witnesses said who were around at this time, and that's how you got your four Gospels. That is an idiotic idea. Now, if, if you were just a man trying to figure out what happened at an event, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what God did. That's not how you got your Bible. They didn't go around asking people, you remember that Jesus guy? What did you see when he was here? Okay, let me write that down. And then they put it all into a book. No, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. These words are inspired by the Word of God. And so the Holy Spirit had control over these men as they wrote this book and people often come, something else that people like to come and say, especially when you're dealing with college students in America, they'll come and they'll say, you know, uh, that, that book's not true. <laughs> okay. So, again, I think I told you a little bit about it last week, but, I, but I'll ask them, have you read what this book says about itself? And they'll say, well, no. Have you read any of it? Well, I, I know Jesus turned water into wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me where that is? Well, no, I can't tell you where it is. Okay. So you don't know if that exists in there at all. You're just making these things up. You don't know whether this book is true or not. Now, in order for them to leave their disbelief and come into a position of belief, they have to believe, and I get it, I understand it's difficult. They have to believe that God himself inspired the words of a book. That's not easy. Now, there's plenty of objective evidence if they were to look at it. It's not blind faith. There's plenty of, of solid proof that that is the case, but, th- but they, won't, they won't get that far. Their professor told them that book's not true, and he's a PhD, so he must know what he's talking about. And so they believe the professor, and they reject God. And that, that's the status quo in America. Look at John 16. One of the blessings of being in Uganda is that most Ugandans believe this book is the Word of God. You have no idea how much easier that makes it when you're trying to witness to people. When, when, your, initial, when your initial battle is, how do, I don't know what God says. I don't know that God has a Bible at all. I don't believe that book. I don't believe it's God's Word. I don't believe it's real. I don't believe it's true. I believe it's full of contradictions. Well, I, how are you going to tell them what the book says you can't even get into it because the initial rejection is that book is false? Well, here in Uganda, Ugandans make a lot of silly claims about Jesus and about the Word of God. But when you take them and you show them, but do you see what it says here in this book? They have to step back and say, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it said that. And then you ask them, so is, is this God's Word? Yeah, that's God's Word. So, okay, you say this, but God's word says this, who's right? And they're going to say God's right. Now, they may or may not get saved right then and there, and it may or may not have the impact it should, but it makes reasoning with them from the scriptures so much easier because they already believe this book is God's word. And we want them to continue believing that. And the only way to do that is to get it into their hands and help encourage that belief. And... 
Ugandans, I've noticed, are becoming more and more cold. They're becoming harder and harder. They're getting more access to television, more access to international radio and news and all the garbage that comes with that. Uh, your universities here in Uganda, pro- probably mostly in Kampala, but I, I'm sure it's out here as well, uh, are started, they're getting their teacher, teachings from Western societies. So their, their professors reject God. They, they, bought, they bought into evolution and, and all, the, all the garbage that comes with that, even though there, there is absolutely no scientific proof for evolution. None whatsoever. In fact, in recent years, it has been hit so hard from a scientific perspective, they now know for sure it's a religion, it is not science, because they, they, they have been, there, there's, a, uh, there, there's a scientific theory called the, the, the Cambrian Explosion, and mathematically, when you, when you lay it out in accord with what's taught about evolution, it proves evolution is unbelievably impossible. Things don't evolve and, and get better. Anytime there's any type of evolutionary process, it's a degradation. You, you, you lose genetics. You lose, you, you become worse, you never get better. One time I was witnessing in, in uh, Leesburg, Florida, and there were two buildings side by side. One was a brand new, beautiful library, and one was an old building that was almost condemned. It just it, Nobody had obviously touched it in a long time. And I'm talking to this college student, and I said, look at these buildings. How long is it going to take for that, for that old building to become like this building? And he's like, well, that's, that's, that's done. the old building's not going to become like this building. I said, no, the new building's going to become like the old building. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, you don't get it, do you? <laughs> it's not registering. Things don't get better over time. They get worse over time. Things degrade over time. We're not evolving into some new, better creature. We're not evolving at all. And, and so, you know, I have an aunt who's a devout atheist. So we have some interesting conversations when we see each other. And um, she was trying to prove to me evolution was real because, you know, a, um, there was a, a virus or a, or a parasite or, or, you know, things of that sort can evolve to reject medication meant to kill it. And so I asked her, what did it evolve into? She said, what do you mean? I said, what? what? You said it evolved. What did it evolve into? Well, it, it was, it's still a parasite. So that's the point. Just because it adapted to be able to, to, to reject medication meant to kill it doesn't mean that it evolved in some, into some new creature and that a billion years from now it's going to be a, a man. <laughs> It's, it's ridiculous on its face. But that's what the world is bought into. That's where they are. They reject God's word. And when you reject God's word, you will receive anything. You'll go so far as to believe that a man can declare himself to be a woman. And if you don't think you can go down that road, just go on the internet and do a quick search and see how many people have, are, are, are miles down that road. See how many countries have bought into that lie. Imagine being a medical doctor, okay? A doctor who has a man come in and says he wants an abortion. And you have to, you have to pretend like this is a real thing. 
And you've got to take this man back and pretend to do an abortion on him. Otherwise, you might hurt his feelings. And, and like, That man needs to be in a mental ward somewhere tied up. But this is becoming more and more real. And it's becoming more and more. And soon, it's going to come to Uganda. There are entire groups who are attacking Uganda because of their stance against homosexuality and against transgenderism. And currently, you have a president, whether you like him or not, he's strong enough to maintain his stance. When Obama went after Museveni, Museveni said, I don't care what you say. (laughs) Obama said, either you reverse your law, condemning homosexuals to death, or we're not going to give you any more money. He said, okay, I'll reduce it to life in prison, but that's all you're getting. Now, when Museveni is gone, who's going to come after him that is strong enough to maintain that? The, the, the pressure of the world coming down on your shoulders, especially when you're a third world country trying to operate the way that you think is best. And again, you may or may not like Museveni, but how many presidents are going to come after him that are going to quote the Bible in his speeches? And, and I don't think you understand that the point is that to have a man who is at least influenced and willing to go in that direction versus what's coming after You have no idea what the future holds for your country. Because the entire West is trying hard to pressure third world countries into buying into giving men abortions. That same man comes in and says, I think I'm pregnant. Really? (laughs) And the doctor can't say, you're not, you're a man, you're not pregnant, you don't have the plumbing, it's not possible, it's just, no, you need to, are you on medication that you're not taking? Because something is, something is desperately wrong with you. And you have an, an, entire, an entire portion of our world who have bought into this. And they expect us to go along with them. And they're changing their laws and they're doing everything they can to make it hate speech if you don't agree with it. So that means when I stand and I open this book and I teach that a man should dress like a man and act like a man, and a woman should dress like a woman and act like a woman, that's now considered hate speech in numerous places in the world. And you could or may even be imprisoned because of it. You know, the BBC did an interview with Museveni, and they like to try to ask you hard questions that they think will make you cower down. And Museveni didn't cower down. <laughs> they, they asked him, the lady said, do you just dislike homosexuals? He said, oh, they're disgusting people. He said, <laughs> he said do you know what they do? <laughs> and the lady was like, all right, next question. Forget it. You know, just pre- pretend I didn't ask that. <laughs> and so uh, now that's a blessing. I understand there's plenty of problems with Museveni and, and there will be with any political leader. I, I get that. But to have someone willing to take such a stand and not back down. That's supposed to be us. We're supposed to be able to say, according to the word of God, I'm not going there with you. I don't hate you. I don't, I don't wish any ill will on you. I wish you'd let me help you from the word of God. But I'm not going in that direction. I'm not moving with you. The Bible says, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So the more your country inputs laws 
that are in line with righteousness, the better your country will operate. And the more you enter, the more you move off into confusion, the, the worse things will be. So, um, John 16, I know I said that and we never read it. Verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So again, repeatedly in the Bible, what, what is the main purpose of the Holy Spirit? To testify of and to glorify Jesus Christ. So when you have a Pentecostal who says, you know, I have the Spirit and it makes me act insane, like, well, I don't know what spirit that is, because it's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, when I come into you, it's going to cause you to glorify and to honor Christ. It's going to cause you to witness of Jesus Christ, not get on your hands and knees and bark like a dog or, or you know, all the, the, the insane things that, that Pentecostals end up doing. And some Pentecostal churches are, you know, the, some of them preach the gospel. I went street preaching with Pentecostals in, in Kampala, my first time ever coming to Uganda in 2016, and they preached the gospel as clear as I've ever seen, as I've ever heard it. They did an excellent job. But then they took me to their church, and I met their female pastor. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what happened? <laughs> what? I asked the young man that was doing all the street preaching, I said, where did you learn to do this? And he said, well, I, was, I was reading in the Bible that everywhere they, they went to preach, they did it publicly, and I thought we should do that. I was like, wow, did you ever read in the Bible about having a female pastor? <laughs> like, what? How did you get the one and completely miss the other? Now, if that, that young man continues to study and, and lets the Bible be his guide, then he'll correct those things and he'll, they'll be fixed. If he doesn't, then um, he'll be going to the doctor and asking for an abortion. <laughs> All right, so regarding the structure and expectations of the Christian life. But he was unable to deliver this, this information at that time because they were not ready. They needed the Holy Spirit. These were men who did not yet have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come. Uh, there, there are two arguments for the official start of the church. You have John 20 and you have Acts 2. You could argue for either. In John 20, Jesus Christ breathed the Holy Spirit into those men. They received the Holy Spirit at that time. But then in Acts chapter 2 was this huge movement of the Holy Spirit on on more people. So um, probably Acts 2 is the more accurate answer, but it, it you could make the argument for either one. So... Um, once they receive the Holy Spirit, now they're ready to hear things that they were not able to, to receive prior. And now that they can receive these things, the Holy Spirit can take control of their mind and their body. When you read of, of men in the Bible going into a trance, you know, Peter on that rooftop and John and Patmos and, uh, you know, the, the, the ways that God kind of took over their body and gave them the words that he wanted Jeremiah, we'll, we'll read about Jeremiah and, and Baruch. When Jeremiah, God, God gave his words to Jeremiah. Jeremiah gave them to Baruch. Baruch recorded them. Jeremiah was in prison and couldn't go anywhere. So Baruch took it to the king and let him read it. And the king wasn't too happy. 
So when the Holy Spirit was come, he would prepare them to receive further revelation. This became your New Testament. That's incredible to think about. So it's, it's as though the Lord is setting this up and, and preparing these people for it. And he says, I've got a lot more to tell you, a lot more you need to know, but you're not ready for it yet. They get the Holy Spirit. Okay, now you're, now you're ready for it. Now you can have it. Now you can take it. I mean, he told them when he was on earth, he's like, I've told you earthly things and you're struggling with that. How can I tell you heavenly things? You know, you, 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 you can only take so much as a, and that, that goes back to the lost man who says this book is not true. That, that's difficult. It's hard. Now, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So whether he believes it's true or not, I'm still responsible to give him the word of God. I'm not going to spend hours trying to lecture a lost man on the validity of the King James Bible. I'm just going to keep giving him the word of God. I'm just going to keep telling him what it says. You know, even if it's in small ways, there was one man that, that I was witnessing to, and he said, uh, you people live by blind faith. I said, well, we don't live by blind faith, but we do live by faith. And he said, yeah, that's what's wrong. I said, well, you live by faith also. He said, no, I don't. I said, yes, you do. And uh, he said, how? I said, well, you ever sit in a chair? He said, yeah. I said, how did you know that chair was going to hold you up? And this is, he said these exact words. He said, I test it before I sit down. <laughs> you test every chair before you sit in it? <laughs> you liar. <clears throat> I said, okay, let's assume you do. You ever flown on a plane? He said, yeah. I said, did you meet the engineers that made that plane? Did you meet the pilot? Did you meet the men who maintain it? I mean, what, how do you know that any of that was done? You don't. Just by faith, you're going to get on the plane and assume a big metal tube is going to take off in the air and land on the other side. <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, I guess you're right. No, you don't guess I'm right. You know I'm right. You live by faith. You just have chosen certain areas of life that are acceptable for you to live by faith. And when it comes to the Word of God, you don't, you don't want to do that. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, the Bible, you said everything in the Bible is wrong. I said, the Bible says when a man is born into this world, he, he brings nothing with him. And when he leaves this world, he can take nothing with him. Is that true? And he said, well, of course that's true. I said, okay, well, there's something that's true in the Bible. I was like, so could there be other things in the Bible that are also true? Well, I, 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 yeah, I, I know. You don't know. And like, it's, you're having a hard time with this. And so, um, so you have to take it step by step and little by little and do what you can to help people understand the Word of God. At least have a, at least have a small measure of respect for the Word of God. I, I can tell you the number, of, the number of witnessing encounters I've had where people left. They didn't get saved, but they left with, with a certain measure of respect for the Word of God. And they said to us, I need to think about this. I need to look at this again. They, they, had, they had to throw out their preconceived ideas because they understand now those were given to them and that there was no validity to them. But they're not yet ready to jump on the other side and say that this Bible is true and that, that I, I need to believe it. But it's a big step in the right direction. Sometimes that's all you can, you can look for. It's just, let's just get them moving in the right direction. Let's just sow some seeds and, and, and some, later on down the road, somebody else is going to come water and somebody else is going to come plow and, and, and all that together ends up leading somebody to Jesus Christ. Next we have the formation of the New Testament. And again, this is, this is just a, a, a brief overview. We're going to get into more detail later because we got to go into uh, 
Antioch, Syria, and their role in all of this. And uh, that, that's important, so I'll just mention it briefly now. Um, what, what is in your Bible, what was significant about Antioch? Somebody tell me. It's where they were first called Christians. And there was a church there. Who were two significant figures who attended that church? Paul and Barnabas. And they were sent out from there. And that was the start of, you know, if you're going to use the book of Acts as a, um, as a template for missions, well, you really can't use it until you get to Acts 13. <laughs> Everything before that and even many things after that don't pertain to us. Was it in, in, I believe it's in Acts 19, where Paul laid his hands on people and gave them the Holy Spirit? Um, you're not doing that. <laughs> That's not part of the, uh, the, the Great Commission. You go out and you preach the gospel, and they got to trust in Jesus Christ, and thereby get the Holy Spirit. Um, but, but Acts 13 on, there are some general principles you can look at that, that will help you as a missionary or even as a church planter or whatever, whatever you're desire is in, in Christian ministry um, that'll, that'll be helpful to you. But this church at Antioch played a major role in assembling what became your New Testament canon the whole, as a whole. And um, that church is unbelievably trustworthy because when you look at that church in the Bible, and we're going to look at both Alexandria and Egypt in your Bible, and we're going to look at Antioch and, and Syria in your Bible. Antioch became the center of New Testament Christianity in our Bible. Uh, Alexandria, Egypt, everywhere in your Bible, it's, anytime it's mentioned, it's negative. <laughs> it's, it's false doctrine, incomplete doctrine, improper doctrine, uh, bondage. I mean, it's just, it's just never a good thing. So, so we want to stay away from Alexandria, and that's important because, I, as I showed you before, you have two lines, essentially, of manuscripts. One comes from Alexandria, and one comes from Antioch. So when, you are, when people argue over Bibles, this is basically what they're arguing over. Uh, either you're arguing for a Bible that came from Alexandria, or you're arguing for a Bible that came from Antioch. In, in its manuscript lineage... It, it, it descends from one of those two places. And, and you arrived at your English Bible from one of those two places. Only the King James Bible comes from here. Now, the New King James um, says that it comes from Antioch, says that they translated it from there, but there are numerous problems with this Bible. You know, every new Bible claims to be, they claim to be just updating the English. Well, if that's the case, why, did you, why do you delete entire verses? They remove the word Lord in reference to Jesus Christ hundreds of times. They removed hell. So the New King James says Hades, not hell. Well, I'm going to go out and tell people, if you don't trust in Jesus, you're going to go to Hades. What is Hades? It's so if their intent is to update the English, that could be that could be seen as a noble thing to try and do. It's not necessary. We have a perfect Bible already, 
But if that was all they were trying to do, you could at least have a measure of respect for them. But the end result is always severe corruption. It's never an updated version of, of comparable to what we have now. It, it, it always has serious problems. Um, you have a lot of guys in Uganda and in Kenya and in Tanzania who think they're helping people by giving them the new King James rather than the King James Bible. So just be careful with that. The new King James is not the King James Bible. It had, we're going to look at uh, the problems with it in, in a later class, but it's got, it has numerous problems and issues, and, and they're doctrinally destructive. If you adopt these, these it's, it's so funny. So you have, there's an entire series of churches in America called Calvary Chapel. And, and they tend to be fairly conservative as far as churches go. And they, they tend to be uh, very uh, active when it comes to witnessing and telling people about Jesus. But they use the ESV or the NASB or, or they use a modern version only the King James Bible has the word Calvary in it. So where'd they get the name of their church? They got it from a King James Bible, and they don't even know it. If you went to them and said, could you show me Calvary in your Bible? It doesn't exist. They deleted it out of all the new Bibles. It's mentioned one time in the King James Bible in the book of Luke, that when they, let, they had led him as far as Calvary, they crucified him. So you have these Calvary chapels who have a Bible that doesn't have the word Calvary in it. <clears throat> so it, it's, it's interesting. So, all right, a collection of Paul's epistles were in circulation by the beginning of the second century. That, that, that's incredible. The second century. So that's, that's like, what, 101 to 199? So... From between 100 and 200 years after, after Christ, Paul's epistles are circulating the world. That, that's unbelievable. Ignatius referred to this collection of epistles around 117 AD. So Ignatius, 117 AD. The four Gospels were assembled before 170 A.D. <clears throat> now, this is not a reference to when they were written. Obviously, they were written much, you know, much earlier than this. But there, there's, a, there's a collected assembly of them. So you're starting to see the New Testament be assembled in, into, into an overall canon of books. Um, the, so this assembly was done by a man named Tatian, and he, he produced what is called the Diatessaron. And the, the Diatessaron, what, what he did was he took the four Gospels, and only the four Gospels, no, nothing else, just the four Gospels, and he put them side by side so that, that, that it's called a harmony of the Gospels. So that you could read them side by side, you could compare them as you read them. Now, think about this. And, and this was um, 170 AD. 
Okay? As early as 170 AD, men only referred to the four Gospels that we have today as the four Gospels. There was no confusion as to, well, should we add Thomas' Gospel or Barnabas' Epistles or, or you know, all, all these other books that have come, come up in latter years. People always like to come and ask about, about these odd books. It's like, what? Can you just try and read the Bible? Why do you got you can't even read those books? They're not even, I don't even believe they're translated into to an English version. They might be at this point, but they, they mean nothing. That most of them have been found to be frauds. They they were not written by the person who said they said it says they were written by, and they were not written at the time that these others were written. You know, when when you go through a document, you can tell if that person was there. If that person was around that time frame, there's a, there are a lot of ways they can tell the authenticity of it, and, and all of them have been found to be false. They've been, they're just fakes. But you can make a lot of money if you can find a new epistle or a, or a new document that supposedly belongs in the Bible. So it only included our four Gospels, which is a blessing. Now, before 200 AD, the New Testament scriptures included Paul's epistles, the four Gospels, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John. So before 200 AD, which puts it here, you had Paul, Paul's epistles, all of them. Um, the four Gospels. 1 Peter, 1 John. These books are referred to by the church fathers. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria. So you know there's going to be problems with him, right? The, the, the thing about a lot of these devils who got their hands on the Bible, they still referred to the truth at times, Tertullian is the last one. Now, this is significant because these guys are way back in the, you know, first and second century, and they're referring to they're referring to these books of the Bible at that time. Tertullian was the man who applied the name New Testament. So he's the man who called it the New. Testament. It's actually in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, but he's that kind of distinguished it from the Old Testament and, 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 made, and called it the New Testament. The seven remaining books, 2 John, 3 John, 2 Peter, Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation, were understood to be Scripture by the 4th century. So that'd be 2 John... Third John, Second Peter, Hebrews, um, James, Jude, Jude, and Revelation. Now these books already existed, but but people were careful to just not, you know, throw things in your Bible and say, "Oh, this is this is the Word of God." You know, they it had to stand up to the test of time, had to stand up to scrutiny, and um, and. God used this person to help with that. 
the Holy Spirit. I will lead you and guide you into all truth. And over time, there have been many documents that claim to be part of the Word of God. And, and they, would, they would gain some popularity for a measure of time, but then they would not hold up to scrutiny, and they would be rejected and kicked out. And through the priesthood of the saints, the, the Holy Spirit would work to, to identify these books as the Word of God. This is the Word of God. And a lot of that was done through the church at Antioch. These books came to be known as the 27 books of the New Testament and only these books. That was it. There's no more. All right, so now we have New Testament preservation. The means of preservation, uh, the Holy Spirit gave faithful guidance to God's people over time to preserve God's word. You're going to hear me mention a man, a man's name a lot. A man that, a man that our brethren, somebody say yes. Everybody, everybody have this? Okay. Um, a man that our brethren should have followed, but they did not. Um, they followed a bunch of devils instead. And so we have this problem in our churches with men referring to the Greek and men not believing the Bible. There's a man named Dean John Burgeon. You're going to hear a lot about him in my teaching. Uh, so there, there were two options for the Christian world to follow in the 1800s. In the 1800s is when, when the revised version of, of the Bible came out, and its intent was to replace the King James Bible. I mean, it, it, it just the King James Bible had superiority for 200 years. Other English people tried to come out with other English Bibles, and nobody wanted them. The King James Bible was was the Word of God. Nobody wanted it. So, a couple of guys got together, called Westcott and Hort. And they were put on a revision assembly meant to revise the King James Bible. Westcott and Hort fell in love with a document from Alexandria, Egypt. They didn't care what any other document said. They, they only cared what, the, what, that document from, what those documents from Alexandria said. So as these, man began, these men began to scrutinize the Word of God... John, Dean John Burgeon took issue with that. And he began to write, he began to, to assemble information and data, and he began to write books to refute Westcott and Hort, and he did an excellent job. And to this day, nobody has even tried to, to challenge his claims. All they do is mock him. They will not. They will not try and challenge what he said. They will not go into his books and say, here's what he's claiming, here's his proof, let me disprove him. They don't do that. They just, he was very aggressive. In his, I enjoy his writings <laughs> because he was, he was very assertive, he was very aggressive. Once he, once he verified what he thought was true, uh, he, he went after Westcott and Hort, it, it, it's, it's, it's fun to read. 
And so he, he developed this, what you could call this theory. It's, it's, I believe it's biblical. I don't think it's a theory, but he lays it out in his, book, in his books as a theory that the Holy Spirit would use the priesthood of the saints, saints to verify God's word over time. And that's exactly what has happened. Fundamental Bible-believing Christians do not reject the King James Bible. Now, if you could make, um, you know, concentric circles, you know, it's the idea where you have a circle. Here you have Bible believers, right? But then you start, you have some who come a little deeper into the circle. Then you have some who come a little less into the circle, and you have some who really are just on the edge of the circle, and then you have some who are way out here, and you just get further and further away from Bible believers as you go. So you have groups of people who, they, they want to call themselves Christians. Maybe even they're saved. But they've been ta- they have been influenced by Westcott and Hort. They have not been influenced by John Burgeon. And what that means is, they don't know where the Word of God is. They've got a book they use. If you use a different one, it's okay. <laughs> if yours is missing verses, that's okay too. Um, we just kind of, we, we do what we can with what we've got, and, and, um, and that's it. And then you have what would be the crowd that I run in, I guess you could say, who are, you know, they'd be considered King James onlyism. <laughs> um, and that's, that's supposed to be a negative connotation. That's supposed to be mocking them. Oh, they believe King James only. Well, yeah. <laughs> now, the problem with our brethren is they're dogmatic, and they don't know why. They couldn't explain to someone. They couldn't sit down with someone that disagrees with them and have an intelligent conversation with them and demonstrate to them the importance of the King James Bible. They just say things dogmatically, and nobody wants to hear it. It, it turns people away. Um, the problem with these other people is they don't believe the Word of God. Now, God has used some great men throughout history that, that were not 100% sold on their, on their English Bible. So we have to be careful and not condemn everybody who doesn't fully agree with us. You also need to be intellectually honest and be able to sit down and demonstrate to someone why you believe this book is what it is and not completely destroy relationships. You can't help somebody if you just completely shut down and destroy the relationship you could have with them. You can help them if, you, if you'll respect them, understand that while you might disagree, God also might be using that man, and you don't want to destroy him or his ministry and, and cause problems. You'd like to help him. The way you help him is to have a relationship with him and, and be able to explain to him why you take the position you take. And I've had numerous opportunities to do that, throughout my time, short time in ministry, and it's been a blessing because I can be very dogmatic, I can be very aggressive, but I have learned not to be dogmatic and not to be aggressive unless I have the information to back it up. And that changes things drastically because when you make a claim and they say, okay, can you demonstrate that? Yes, I can. And if I can't, then I I tell I have to be honest. It's, and say, no, I can't prove that to you, um, but it's what I believe. So, <clears throat> so our brethren should have followed John Burgeon 
They should not be following Westcott and Hort. And every time you hear someone who opens a Bible, a King James Bible, and says, this word in the Greek is, they are following Westcott and Hort. And these two men were two absolute reprobate devils. They were horrendous. We're going to talk pretty soon about their, their, their Christian doctrine, and it's bad enough. But outside of that, they were participating in, they were warlocks. So that's a, some kind of religion out of England where, you know, you can be a witch and you can be, you know, all these, you can cast spells on people and, and do all these odd things. Um, those, those are the men that wanted to, to revise your King James Bible. Say, yeah, take a hike. Go away. I don't care what you think. But they did a lot of damage. They were highly respected. They, um, they had the, the ears and the eyes of academia, and that's the problem. Probably 80% of the world's problems are intellectuals. <laughs> intellectuals get an idea, and you become subject to their experiment. And if it goes bad, the problem with intellectuals is they get to play with society and they get to perform experiments on the people in society, but they never suffer the repercussions of their bad decisions. And that's where we are today. These men had the hearts and minds of the intellectuals. Virgin, they literally said John Virgin was too mean. So we, we, we don't want to read his books. Westcott and Hort said, we will not refute him because when I read what he writes, it's too mean. <laughs> so that's, that's where we are today. Um, the Holy Spirit gave faithful guidance to God's people over time to preserve God's word. First, faithful and trustworthy scribes were given the responsibility to make exact copies of, of New Testament canons. Second, these copies were, were read and recopied by believers throughout the centuries. Third, untrustworthy copies or documents that were said to be Scripture were not recopied, and they were not widely read. So once, once someone determined, this is not the Word of God, the, the church, the body of Christ, something is, something is off here, then... It, then, it, then it lost its popularity. It, it would be popular for a time. They often enjoyed popularity for a short time, but Christians, under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, did not accept them as Scripture. The same still happens today. Modern Bibles do not last long. They are changed and changed again every few years. This continual changing is required in order to reignite excitement, but the King James Bible is exactly the same. It has not been changed. Now, we're going to talk about editions of the King James Bible. That's a very important distinction. You have editions of the King James Bible versus revisions. Um, editions of the King James Bible basically brought it up to date to spelling. People often say to me, well, I've, I've seen a 1611 and I can't read it. It's, it, the words are, are completely different. No, the words are not different at all. The spelling is different. In the, in the 1600s up to the 1800s, 
It was considered a sign of intelligence if you could spell one word multiple ways. <laughs> so they, they believed if you could only spell a word one way, you lacked intelligence. Well, in the 1800s, they came out with something very important. It's called a dictionary. And with a dictionary came standardized, uh, standardized spelling. Well, once you get standardized spelling, well, in the King James Bible, they would use a, a V for a U and an F for an S, and they would, they would spell it just, they'd spell the word with whatever letters they thought. They were kind of like Luganda speakers. <laughs> they just made it up as they go. They didn't care what the rules are. <laughs> so, um, but once you get to the 1800s, they came out with a dictionary. Now you have standardized spelling. So they brought the words up to the, the universal spelling of that day. And it's been the same ever since. Uh, there, there are a few other changes that were made, uh, uh, printing errors, you know, the, the old printing press they had, they literally had to, to, it's called a printing press because they literally had to press it. Uh, they, they even had, you know, some of them had a large plate and that plate was attached to like a, a large screw that a man would have to push the screw and turn around until it came down and pressed it into the, the, the document. And then they would hold it there and then pull it off and you'd have, your, your document. And so uh, you can imagine all the, the errors or the issues that that would have caused. It, it's going to introduce, you know, ghosting, what is often called ghosting, where one letter, you know, supposed to be one letter, but it looks like a different letter because of the way it was pressed into it and all that kind of thing. So all that was corrected and, and um, uh, any issues of that sort were fixed, and then you ended up with what we have today. But as far as changing the words, um, the only words that have ever been changed in the King James Bible, if you look in your Bible, let me see if I can find one. Does this one not have it? Uh, the italicized words. Somebody just look in their Bible and see if you can find italicized words and call out the Scripture. Romans 16, 19. Turn there quickly and then we'll go to break. Romans 16, 19. Uh, read the italicized words. It's not, uh, it's not marked in my Bible. Men. Oh, just the word men. <laughs> yeah, it is marked in mine. You just happened to pick one that had the least amount possible. I don't think I've ever seen a verse that only had one word that was <laughs> italicized, but... Um, so those are italicized words. You'll have people, I was in a church in Kentucky once and a pastor told me, I don't believe a single word of the italicized in my King James Bible. And his reason for that is the italicized words are required to make sense of what's being said. Okay. In Spanish, I don't remember how to say it, but it's a great example. In Spanish, the way you would say toothbrush, does everybody know what a toothbrush is? Yeah, well, I'm not, I, I'm not, it's not an insult. <laughs> I just, you may not know the English word, I'm just making sure. So in English, you say toothbrush, right? It's one word. 
In Spanish, you say brush of the teeth. My guess is in Luganda, you probably say something similar. No? Okay. Well, that's, this is generally the way you word things in Luganda. Right. Now, what you would have to do if you were translating this from English to Spanish, these two words would have to be italicized. Of the, because it's not mentioned here. But if you're going to go word for word, and you're going to make sure that it says in Spanish what you're trying to say in English, you have to add these in order for it to make sense in Spanish. Right. You just say brush teeth, which doesn't make sense to them. So the italicized words in your King James Bible, now that this is, how simple is the word toothbrush? Right? Now imagine the complex concepts of what's being laid out in the Word of God. And you've got to get that from Greek to English and make it make sense and make sure it says what it said in the Greek and not alter it when you get to English. So in order to to do that in some areas, they had to add from Hebrew to English and from Greek to English, they had to add italicized words to support what was being said. They're not, they're not, they didn't just take it upon themselves to add words. In order for it to make sense in English, this, this extra information had to be added in order for it to, to fit and to fit properly. And so that's what they, were, what they were doing. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.